0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: It's The Takeaway. I'm Matt Katz, a reporter at WNYC in Frutenzina Vega. Anti-Asian violence spiked across the U.S. during the COVID-19 pandemic fueled in part by the racist and xenophobic rhetoric we've heard over the last four years and beyond. On Thursday, President Joe Biden signed the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act into law. It aims to address the uptick in hate crimes targeting the Asian American and Pacific Islander population. All of this hate hides in plain sight. It hides in plain sight. And too often, it is met with silence. Silence by the media silenced by our politics, and silenced by our history. The legislation passed in the House earlier this week and received overwhelming support in the Senate last month. Here's Congresswoman Judy Chu, one of the bill's co-sponsors, speaking on Tuesday.
2: What is it like to open up the newspaper every day and see that yet another Asian American has been assaulted, attacked, um, and even killed? Well, When you read that every single day and see that there are 6,600 of them, and that's probably an underreporting, then you start to think, well, will I be next?
1: According to Stop AAPI Hates, an organization tracking racist incidents against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, There have been more than 6,600 reported incidents of anti-Asian discrimination since last year. That includes everything from physical violence and verbal harassment to bullying and vandalism. The last piece of federal hate crimes legislation was the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act from back in 2009, which sought to address hate crimes based on sexual orientation, gender identity and more. So what exactly does the new COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act mean for the AAPI population? Let's talk about it. With me now is Congresswoman Judy Chu, who represents California's 27th District. She's also the chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Congresswoman Chu, great to have you with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: It's our pleasure. So tell us why this piece of legislation is significant. Is it both symbolic and concrete in what it does
2: it is actually concrete in providing relief to so many asian americans across the country but also to all hate crime victims in this country and i was so overwhelmed and gratified to be there in the white house at this important moment in history when this bill was signed into law For over a year, the AAPI community has experienced fear, anxiety, and terror due to anti-Asian hate crimes. But finally, we have a bill that will provide relief. It provides for uh, a designated person in the Department of Justice to expedite the prosecution of hate crimes. It issues guidance to all jurisdictions, local, state and tribal on the ability to establish online reporting and uh, the uh, way in which to conduct culturally relevant and linguistically appropriate public education c- campaigns with communities on hate crimes. And it includes the No Hate Act which of, of which I am a co-lead, which s- will improve Uh, the uh, ability to collect hate crime statistics uh, and also provide resources to uh, governments, local governments, uh, so that they can actually have training and uh, resources to improve their enforcement of hate crimes uh, in their local jurisdiction and also provide for state-run hotlines for victims.
1: Was this all in a direct response to the rise in anti-Asian violence over the past year, Um, the rhetoric over the past four or five years, or was it more than that?
2: Well, the anti-Asian hate crimes started uh, in the last year with the rise of uh, President Trump's rhetoric, where he exacerbated the anti-Asian hate by using the terms China virus, Wuhan virus, and Kung flu. So this is how we ended up with 6,600 anti-Asian hate crimes. And let me tell you that we wouldn't have even known about the 6,600 had it not been for nonprofits that stepped up to establish an anti-Asian hate crime reporting site. That just showed how seriously lacking our federal hate crime reporting system is. Actually, it was way back in, 1990, when the FBI was mandated to collect hate crime statistics, but uh, they relied on local jurisdictions to voluntarily uh, provide that information. Well, out of the 15,000 local law enforcement agencies, only 15% ever reported to the FBI. So you can imagine how uh, faulty our hate crime reporting system is uh, and you could you could run holes through it. That's why this bill was so needed so that we can improve the national system for reporting such crimes, uh, but also provide resources to local law enforcement so that they can get the proper training and uh, policies that will help them to address hate crimes.
1: Yeah, part of this just seems to be getting a handle on how big of a problem this is. We don't even really
2: know how often this happens, right? We do not. And if you don't have accurate statistics, then uh, you don't know how to solve the problem. Uh, and just to demonstrate how uh, how bad the system was, uh, Khalid Jabara and Heather Heyer's families were there yesterday. Heather Heyer was killed by the white supremacists. Uh, in Charlottesville, and uh, Khalid Jabara was killed by his next door neighbor uh, who hated him because he was Arab. And the local jurisdiction never reported this to the FBI as a hate crime.
1: Wow. You know, one, one limitation here seems to be how Congress defines a hate crime. Uh, The majority of recent incidents against the AAPI population, as I understand it, have been verbal harassment, which isn't necessarily a hate crime, right?
2: It is not. And in fact, most of the 6,600 hate crimes and incidents are really hate incidents where it's a verbal assault um, of some sort. But I think we have to have some ability to also track the hate incidents um, and uh, stop the law enforcement uh, personnel from from just turning away somebody who's the victim of a terrible verbal assault and say, I can't do anything for you. Uh, We need to have some way of also tracking that. And uh, that's what I hope that this um, this hate crime bill will do.
1: A number of Asian American, also LGBTQ organizations, uh, including Stop API Hate, have raised concerns about the new hate crime legislation, saying that it doesn't get at the root cause of the violence. Is there legislation that can tackle the root cause of, of these hate crimes and hate incidents?
2: President Biden was so uh, passionate yesterday and so eloquent in talking about what the root cause is, which is uh, our attitudes, it is our desire to deal with hate crimes and to have communication and understanding of one another. Uh, The root cause has to do with how we interact with each other in the society. And the change starts when people at the very top say stop to this hate. And President Biden did that, which, by the way, was a sea change from, of course, the previous year in which the president actually exacerbated uh, the hate crimes that were occurring against AAPIs. Uh, And in fact, we tried to uh, have some communication with uh, President Trump uh, and tried to meet with the Department of Justice for an entire year, but were ignored. Mm -hmm. So President Biden changed things tremendously when he came in and expressed his uh, strong condemnation of uh, hate crimes and uh, also the resources of the Department of Justice in addressing this. So from the very top, he changed things. And what we need to do as a nation is respond to that, respond to that strong call to stop these hate crimes, uh, not only against AAPIs, but against anybody who is um, the victim of scapegoating and blaming in this country.
1: 63 Republicans in the House did not vote in favor of this bill. What was their justification and and what were your conversations with them like about this?
2: Yes, it was very disturbing. Uh, They said things like uh, uh, hate crimes should not be distinguished from other crimes. They should be just treated like any crime. Um, And uh, there was uh, uh, also some who said that um, uh, this uh, turns the federal government into the speech police, uh, gives giving the government sweeping authority to decide what counts as offensive speech. Actually, it didn't expand the authority of the federal government to, to monitor police. So this person was uh, greatly mistaken. And then there were those who just didn't wanna vote for it because um, of the implication that it would uh, blame Trump. Um, uh, but actually, the bill uh, doesn't um, mention Trump in in any way. So that was uh, not a legitimate uh, uh, complaint that they should have had.
1: Hmm. Before I let you go, Congresswoman, can you just describe how Asian Americans in this country right now are are feeling? Are they changing their behavior because out of out of concern that they could be beaten up or attacked on the streets? And what's it like? <sighs>
2: So for the whole past year, there have been these terrible attacks and assaults reported. But in this last year, there were even more assaults against the elderly, against the vulnerable, against uh, two elderly Asian women sitting at a bus stop in San Francisco uh, when a man Uh, attacks them, stabbing them with uh, knives in the chest, uh, requiring the 84-year-old to go to the hospital and get surgery. This is the kind of thing that is terrorizing the community. Uh, People are concerned for their grandmothers and grandfathers, but they also have been waking up every day saying, will I be next?
1: It's uh, horrifying, and uh, we'll wait to see what this legislation can do to, to keep this community and all communities as safe as possible. Congresswoman Judy Chu represents California's 27th district. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us on The Takeaway.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Earlier this week, New York Attorney General Letitia James said her office will be investigating former President Trump's business dealings in a criminal capacity. James was already doing a civil investigation, but the criminal probe means the AG's office will work alongside the Manhattan District Attorney to investigate possible fraud committed by the Trump Organization. For more on this and to explain what it all can mean for the former president is my colleague, Andrea Bernstein, co-host of WNYC's Trump, Inc., and author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. Andrea, welcome back to The Takeaway. So great to talk to you, Matt. So, Andrea, before we get started, can you give us a little insight into the background of this investigation? Remind us how we got here.
3: Yeah, so there are these two investigations that have been going on in New York since basically 2018. 2018 uh, was when Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former personal attorney, pleaded guilty in federal court to paying hush money payments to two women who alleged that they'd had affairs with Donald Trump before he was president. Mm -hmm. And... That guilty plea and subsequent testimony that he gave to Congress launched several investigations into whether there was possible bank fraud, tax fraud, insurance fraud by Trump, by his associates or the Trump organization. So initially, after it became clear that federal prosecutors were not going to indict the president, the Manhattan D.A., sometime after Michael Cohen's testimony in 2018, began digging into his business record. So if, in fact, Donald Trump was aware that his company was paying Michael Cohen what he they called a retainer for what was actually hush money, that could be a felony in New York. So they began looking at that and as they began unraveling, they began to suspect that there might be some kind of insurance fraud or tax fraud because Trump, it appeared, was giving different numbers to various authorities and regulators depending on what would be in his financial interest. So, for example, when he had to pay taxes, he would downplay the value and the income on certain properties. But when he wanted a bank loan, he would say things are going like gangbusters for a particular building or property, so therefore he should get a nice, healthy loan. Well, Mm. you can't do that if you're doing that intentionally. That could be a crime. So that's what the district attorney in Manhattan, Cyrus Vance Jr. began to look at. Separately, the New York Attorney General began looking at these claims of whether Donald Trump underpaid his New York taxes, which would be a civil case. So if the Attorney General could prove that there was evidence that Donald Trump had intentionally done this kind of evaluation scheme, there could have been a requirement by a judge that Trump or his business pay back the taxes that they underpaid. So that would be a civil case, and that was going along. While the attorney general was working on this case, as we now know, she developed evidence that a crime was committed regarding this. We don't know what crime. There's been a suggestion that she's using a tool that is available in New York called the Martin Act, which allows attorneys general in New York to broadly investigate businesses for potential crimes. We obviously don't know the details, but what we do know and what we did learn this week is that her office has detailed two assistants attorneys general to work with the Manhattan DA, and it has become sort of one more unified, broader and potentially more serious criminal investigation for Trump, his business, and his associates.
1: Is that unusual that these two different law enforcement agencies would be working together?
3: Yeah, it's pretty unusual. I mean, you know, in public, the New York attorney general and the Manhattan DA sort of always suggests, and this is going back through the ages, it's not these Mm -hmm. particular individuals, suggest, oh, yes, we're working together. But when you probe them privately, you detect rivalry. Different offices want different credits. The attorney general is an elected statewide office. If you look at where previous attorneys general of New York have gone, many of them have gone to the governor's office. For example, our current governor, uh, Andrew Cuomo, was Attorney General before he was governor. So that is a sort of highly politicized office, and there's a lot of sensitivities about who gets credit for what. But in this case, even though they are very different jurisdictions, the whole state of New York versus the county of Manhattan, which is obviously a much smaller unit, are both looking at the same case and working together. And that is something that we really have not seen a lot of over the years now, I should say that this case is like nothing that anybody can ever remember in New York. It's incredibly complicated. Cyrus Vance tried for two years, eventually successfully, had to go to the Supreme Court twice to get Donald Trump's tax returns and related tax records. There is a lot to go through there. So there's a lot of documents to go through. And then these are complicated criminal cases. So... There is a chain of evidence that has to be understood, maintained, intent has to be proved. There are many, many hurdles. So what a number of people who have uh, worked in these offices have said to us is that this is a force multiplier. This will allow pooling their knowledge and for a more careful examination of the evidence and whether it supports criminal charges.
1: And is there also a civil investigation still going on as well? Are these these two things happening concurrently, the civil and criminal cases?
3: Yes, that's correct. So the civil case would be, the remedy in the civil case would be pay New York money if yeah. Donald Trump uh, misrepresented what he owed in New York taxes. A criminal case carries with it potential jail time, prison time. Now, we know from the... Because Donald Trump sued Cy Vance, the DA, to try to keep him from getting the tax records, we know a lot about the case. Normally, we wouldn't. Normally, it would be behind grand jury secrecy laws and other secrecy laws, and we wouldn't know anything. But we know that one of the crimes that the DA is looking at is a B felony in New York, which carries uh, very significant prison time if it were applied to an individual. So it's a very serious and major case that they're looking at right now all
1: right so andrew what has trump's reaction been i i know i haven't seen him tweet anything because he's not allowed to tweet anything right now but i imagine he's fuming over this
3: yes so initially uh the trump organization and trump did not respond save for a montage of video clips that eric trump turned over to the washington post which were letitia james basically speaking before she was elected as attorney general about the importance of uh, holding Trump to legal account. And obviously, the even before Trump was president and while he was president, this has been something that the New York attorney general has worked on. There have been two very high profile cases that the attorney general worked on. One was the Trump University case, and then one was the Trump Foundation case. And in both cases, the Trump organization was required to pay money to New York State. So when she was running for office, she expressed her commitment to pursuing these kinds of cases, and the Trump family has used this to express that this is an illegitimate investigation. After this news came out, Trump did Post a statement on his website and it said, quote, if you can run for a prosecutor's office pledging to take out your enemies and be elected to that job by partisan voters who wish to enact political retribution, then we are no longer a free constitutional democracy. And of course, Trump himself has been accused of when he was president trying to use the Justice Department to enact political retribution.
1: What's next in the case then? What should we be looking out for in the next several weeks on this matter?
3: Several weeks? Unclear. I mean, we know, we can tell that the that they're still gathering evidence. They're still speaking to witnesses. Uh, there is continued pres- uh, pressure on the chief operating officer of the Trump organization, Alan Weisselberg. He's denied any wrongdoing, but there has been a... Uh, very close look at his finances and the finances of Weisselberg's family. And a number of people that I've spoken to who used to work uh, in the Manhattan DA's office have said that they expect that putting pressure on Weisselberg would be the standard way to go when you're trying to put together a case against Trump. Because, of course, in these criminal cases, you have to improve. You have to prove that there was intent. You have to prove that these valuation differences were done deliberately. And because Trump doesn't... Uh, use email the easiest way to do that is through witness testimony about what Trump understood if there is not written documentation so we know they're looking for that at some point there could be an indictment now there's some clocks running out and again we know this from the DA himself because when he was arguing his case he said the statutes of limitation are going to run out so they begin to run out uh, soon and uh, after all trump was elected in 2016 and we're coming up on the 5th anniversary of that mm-hmm. so there are, there's a pressure from statutes of limitations and also the district attorney in manhattan who has now made this case a major priority is leaving office at the end of the year he's not running for reelection so sometime in the next calendar year there could be criminal charges against trump his family his associates or his business Again, they've denied wrongdoing, but we don't know that clock and we won't know until it happens.
1: And you'll likely keep us updated as it happens. Andrea Bernstein is the co-host of WNYC's Trump, Inc., and author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. Andrea, thanks so much.
3: So great to talk to you.
1: We're going to take some time the rest of this hour trying to understand the happenings in Congress this week over the formation of a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The idea to form a commission in the style of the one that investigated the 9-11 attacks has been fraught since day one. Democrats are in favor and Republicans are, for the most part, staunchly opposed. But last Friday marked a breakthrough moment when a group of House Democrats and Republicans announced they had reached a deal. This rare kumbaya moment, however, was short-lived. By Tuesday, four days later, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy came out against the commission. He spoke to the press later in the week about it. That's the type of work we want to make sure done, that it never happens again, that those who participated and caused it should be held accountable, and that we secure this capital and we don't play politics with it. I just think a Pelosi commission is a lot of politics. Some saw the move as throwing fellow Republican Representative John Katko under the bus. I strongly believe this is a fair and necessary legislation. I encourage all members, Republicans and Democrats alike, to put down their swords for once, just for once, and support this bill. Katko helped negotiate the deal. This pivot may have dashed hopes for a truly bipartisan vote, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi lamented the situation this week.
2: I don't know, you'll have to ask them what
3: they're afraid of. You have to ask them, but it sounds like they're afraid of the truth, and that's most unfortunate. But hopefully they'll get used to the idea that the American
2: people want us to find the truth.
1: And before the bill came up for a vote, the House was filled with passionate debate.
2: One question encompasses everything. What happened? A truth-telling commission will set the record straight. The
4: crisis at our border is unlike anything we've ever seen. Democrats would rather spend $2 billion on a roll around this building in D.C. This
2: bill is not about politics.
3: It's not about settling scores. It's about ensuring that every person who comes onto the Capitol grounds
2: is safe and is protected. You see, what's going to happen with the January 6th commission is the media is going to use this to smear Trump supporters and President Trump for the next few years.
4: There has been an active effort to whitewash and rewrite the shameful events of that day to
1: avoid accountability and turn away from difficult truths. Nevertheless, after hours of speeches and debate, the House voted in favor of the commission. On this vote, the
3: yeas are 252. The nays are 175. The bill is passed.
1: Just 35 Republicans voted to support it. In fact, Congressman Greg Pence, brother of former Vice President Mike Pence, voted against the bill. If you remember, some insurrectionists chanted, hang Mike Pence, during the attack on the Capitol. Some Democrats were not pleased, to say the least.
4: Holy cow, incoherence. No idea what you're talking about. Ben Benghazi, you guys chased the former Secretary of State all over the country, spent millions of dollars. We have people scaling the Capitol, hitting the Capitol Police with lead pipes across the head, and we can't get bipartisanship.
1: House Democrat Tim Ryan from Ohio.
4: What else has to happen in this country? Cops. This is a slap in the face to every rank-and-file cop in the United States. If we're gonna take on China, if we're gonna rebuild the country, if we're gonna reverse climate change, we need two political parties in this country that are both living in reality, and you ain't one of them.
1: Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer vowed to bring the bill up for a vote in the Senate. I will put the January 6th commission legislation on the floor of the Senate for a vote, period. Republicans can let their constituents know, are they on the side of truth? Or do they want to cover up for the insurrectionists and for Donald Trump?
0: I've made the decision to oppose the House Democrats' slanted and unbalanced proposal for another commission to study the events of January the 6th.
1: With me now is Tom Kane, chair of the 9-11 Commission and former New Jersey governor. He's a Republican for context. Governor Kane, nice to speak with you again and welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. Good to be with you.
1: Also here is Nick Fandos, Congressional Correspondent for The New York Times. Nick, welcome back to The Takeaway. Thanks for having me. Governor Kane, I imagine you've been thinking a lot about your work on the 9-11 Commission as this debate over a possible 1-6 Commission moves through Congress. What do you think was so important about the 9-11 Commission and the report that you published, which, by the way, was so widely read it even reached bestseller lists?
0: Well, you know, it was a unique event in American history and um, we didn't know a lot of the answers. And Congress did an investigation because Congress has not got enough staff or enough time or or they get distracted by everything. They weren't able to do a complete investigation. And so a lot of people, including the families of 9-11, demanded the facts and demanded something different be done. And so really due to public pressure at that point, or only due to public pressure, the Congress authorized a bill, the president signed it, and we were set up. And the important thing is, it was truly bipartisan. It was unanimous in its recommendations. It went over all the facts. Uh, we made 41 recommendations, most of which were enacted. The whole intelligence system of the country was redone. And uh, we haven't had an attack of that kind or even contemplated an attack of that time since. So it was success- it was a successful committee, supported at the end by I think, 85% and 90% of the American people. So it worked. The bottom line is, if it's an important event, you can do this and it works. Given
1: that, Governor Kane, how do you think Congress should proceed in terms of establishing a similar kind of bipartisan commission to look into the January 6 attack?
0: Well, I think this is an important enough event. You know, the first time something's happened to the Capitol since you know, 1814. So this is important enough. So we, we need answers that we haven't got right now. How wide was the conspiracy? Who was involved? Was there a conspiracy? Was it or just a riot? I mean, what, what, what were the facts? I don't think the American people really know that yet. And the way to find it really and particularly important right now with Congress so polarized, the important things to do is to have an investigation that is credible, that the people accept, that is truly bipartisan. And, uh, you know, once we've done that and found the facts, we can make recommendations so that this kind of thing can never, ever happen again.
1: So, Governor Cain, you're a former Republican governor of New Jersey. What do you think about the fact that 35, just 35 Republicans in the House voted with Democrats in support of this commission and now Senator McConnell is,
0: is opposing it? What do you make of that? Well, I'm very disturbed by it because, you know, Congress and I've got a we got an expert on Congress on your show here, so I shouldn't be saying it. But it looks to me and a lot of the American public was it's a Congress that Congress doesn't work anymore. I mean, they just can't do the really important things anymore. And partisanship and a whole bunch of other stuff gets in the way. And if the Congress isn't going to work, then you've got to find ways to do the most important things without Congress. And and that's, I'm afraid, where we are right now. And what Congress is saying, I think right now, or at least the Republicans, a lot of them are saying, we can't do this anymore. Not in a fair way. Not in a bipartisan way. We can't really do investigations that are going to be credible with the American people. And that's been one of the prime functions of Congress over the years. So, if, if if this if they can't really do this, can't really set up a bipartisan commission, can't agree on that, then I, I think we got problems in the future for the democracy.
1: We'll go to our congressional expert, Nick Fandos from the New York Times. What are the chances that the Senate gives a green light to create this January sixth commission?
4: So, I think it's looking uh, increasingly pessimistic after this week that the that the Senate will come up with 10 Republican votes uh, to join with all 50 Democrats to to approve this um, there was a brief window of time where it seemed as if it might be possible on Tuesday as House Republicans uh, were coming out against the, the Commission in mass Mitch McConnell the Republican leader in the Senate said uh, he was open to it and willing to hear the arguments he had it you know some minor quibbles uh, but they seemed like things that might be overcome and we heard you know, I was talking to a lot of his uh, members who seemed to like this idea, you know, uh, as, as the governor was saying, take it out of the hands of, of Congress to an independent body that might be, you know, better trusted and could come to some independent conclusions. But um, really, literally overnight, um, Tuesday into Wednesday, uh, uh, McConnell um, decided he was going to oppose this. And, and most of his uh, folks seemed to be falling very quickly in line. I mean, it was almost it was surreal. To hear conversations change from Tuesday to Wednesday from some of the same senators who, you know, are now arguing that this is redundant. You know, the Justice Department already has hundreds of criminal prosecutions underway. There's a handful of congressional committees, um, you know, as they were before the 9-11 Commission set up that are doing um, investigations, albeit far narrower into what happened. Um, And, uh, you know, they said that's enough. We don't need to we don't need to set something else uh, up in addition to that, and, and in any case, it'll take too long.
1: What what is McConnell's political concern here with 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 this? Why did he change his mind? What were the political reasons for it?
4: So yeah, I think the only conclusion, frankly, is is political. And um, you know, McConnell criticized Trump pretty clearly after the sixth, but he, he's right. decided, as have other party leaders, that um, taking time to pause and go back and relitigate and maybe you know, unearth other disturbing findings from from that day are not going to be good for the Republican Party, that it's better to put this event behind them than to really understand what happened, particularly as they're trying to win back control of the House and Senate in in 2022. And this kind of commission uh, would would easily, you know, leave the control of their grasps and and could produce a report right on the kind of eve of that election that they might find, uh, you know, pretty unsavory
1: because it would reflect. Poorly, perhaps, on Republican the Republican base.
4: Sure, and on uh, their standard bearer,
1: Donald Trump, um, and right. on members of Congress
4: who, um, as you recall, were were um, embraced and and fanned, you know, the outrage over the president's lies about what happened in the twenty twenty election that ultimately mm-hmm. fueled this
1: uprising. Governor Kane, you mentioned this earlier, but can you tick off some of the most impactful recommendations of the nine eleven commission?
0: Yeah, we reorganized one of the largest reorganizations of the American government in our history. We changed the whole intelligence operation. The DNI, uh, Director of National Intelligence, centralized it so that the agencies would have to talk to each other, put a commission together so they met together, not commission, but an agency together so they met periodically. It was a whole, this was 41 recommendations. And uh, the important thing was that not only were they, almost all of them implemented Uh, The only one that wasn't implemented was for the reform of Congress, by the way. But uh, it it worked. It simply worked. It it worked because we have
1: not been attacked like that in any way in almost 20 years since the events of 9-11, right?
0: Yeah, our our intelligence has been operating in a successful way uh, because of those recommendations, because it's a total reorganization, and uh, we now force the agencies to talk to each other. I mean, the point in line, the CIA and the FBI didn't talk. If they had caught, frankly, some of the some of these uh, conspirators would have been caught. And if they had been caught, we wouldn't have had 9-11. I mean, that, that's how important it was. And so well, uh, well, it, you know, it worked. That's the, that's the bottom line.
1: Nick, I'm wondering what kinds of conversations are happening on the Hill between Kevin McCarthy, the House minority leader and members of his party who voted with with Democrats on this.
4: Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned at the outset, Matt, I mean, there were 35 Republicans who broke ranks from McCarthy. Um, that was a number that, you know, for this very partisan Congress seemed pretty big. Uh, it was still only about, a, I think, less than a fifth of House Republicans, though. And, and in that respect, uh, it was a bit embarrassing for Leader McCarthy, who, as you recall, last week led the, the charge to oust uh, Representative Liz Cheney, his number three. Um, In part, over many of these same issues, her refusal to stop going after Donald Trump and members of her own party for um, the way they're talking about January 6th um, and the election. Um, And after that, he, you know, he pledged to unify the party that that Republicans were going to put these divisions behind them uh, and go united towards 2022. Well, this week was kind of a miserable example of that. And so he at the last minute, I think, spent a lot of time scrambling to try and tamp down support keep it just to those 35. Um, you know, he said subsequently, you know, obviously it's their their prerogative to vote how they want. Um, I think in some cases, you know, a lot of those members are are what we call frontline members. They're in competitive districts. And I think he felt if they, you know, judge this to be uh, important for their constituents or for their reelection campaign, go for it. But as long as I keep the numbers, you know, down in the 20s and 30s, Uh, and and I've got McConnell on my side, well, there's no risk that this is going to end up happening. So, um, you know, I I think there's a fair amount of, uh, um, you know, hand-wringing in his leadership team and, frankly, some, you know, sniping and backbiting from his backbenchers who, you know, saw him, we should also say, deputize a a key. Uh, Republican John Katko to go and negotiate this deal he did on the terms that McCarthy wanted basically and then McCarthy kind of hung him out to dry went Mm. against it so I don't think there's a lot of good feeling but in the end I think um, it's looking like the leader's going to walk away with what he wants which is uh, no commission
1: yeah well this now goes to the Senate after after passing the House but it looks uh, as you said earlier things don't look good in the Senate Governor Kane as a respected longtime figure in the Republican Party. Have you or would you consider having conversations with members of the Senate to try to get them on board with this commission? Yeah,
0: you know, if it would be helpful, you know, it's very discouraging to me when when it seems it's the greatest sin you can make on Capitol Hill now is to vote your conscience. Uh-huh. Uh, that, that didn't used to be. And, and this has very wide ramifications. For instance, we've got to do something similar on covid. We've got to find out, you know, how it happened, why it happened, what mistakes we made, and set up set up a group so to make sure when the next pandemic comes along, we do it right. That's very, very important. A group of scholars and former officials are looking at that right now. And you know what that first conclusion is? Congress is incapable of doing it. Congress is incapable of setting up even such a commission, and they're now looking to the private sector and the colleges and so on to set up some kind of a commission that the American people will accept. I mean, this says. This this has prime recom- uh, ram- ramifications when the Congress cannot be trusted to set up an independent commission that the world thinks is independent.
1: It, it does seem reflective of the, the the way Congress is right now and that just nothing can get done. If they can't approve this, then what can they agree
0: on, right? Well, well that's that's looking at outside of it. Now, again, we're talking to an expert on Congress. Uh, yeah, so We know a lot more than I do, but it just... Uh, and somebody who's been around government for a long time, and his father served in Congress for a number Great. of years. My father, and if twenty, I love Congress. I've always respected Congress, but that respect is getting harder and harder to maintain, frankly, uh, by a lot of people like me who are looking at it from the outside because it doesn't seem to be able to do the most important things that the American people find necessary.
1: Nick, how are members of Congress doing in terms of? Dealing with what they lived through just a few months ago, I mean, are they are they still you know feeling the effects of that that trauma, the attack on their their where they work, they were hiding in their under their desks. I mean, how are they are they still talking about that? You know, it's it's been a
4: fascinating evolution to watch because um, you know if you think about it in terms of of you know all the senators and members of the House were, that were there that day lived through this one event together. Maybe they were in different parts of the building and their experience varied slightly. Uh, but they lived through one thing. And, and as time has gone on, I think that the way that they think about that and process that has really started to splinter to the point where, um, yes, there are most Democrats and, and a lot of Republicans who feel, you know, what happened that day was was chilling and undemocratic and represents, you know, a grave threat to the nation, um, you know, that, that shouldn't happen again. Uh, but there are also, you know, a growing number of Republicans, particularly in the House we've seen, who, um, and, and some in the Senate, um, Senator Ron Johnson most recently of Wisconsin, who seem to be, you know, rewriting or reframing the narrative of what happened that day, saying this was not an insurrection, saying this was, there was one member of the House who compared it to, a, you know, an average tourist visit to the building, um, wow. who are now complaining that the Department of Justice is um, harassing and unfairly um treating people who just came to protest peacefully uh who they've now arrested or charged in connection um to the incident now those cases will will play out and those people are innocent until proven guilty but um you know it it's a pretty stark turnabout uh given how much of this was as we say a lived through you know in real time and and place by many of these members and and all played out on live television too i mean there's no not a lot of room to, um, uh, escape what, what some of these images were. And I think that that's part of what's fueling, you know, the, the disagreement about this commission. And there's one key difference that I wanted to point out from, uh, the 9-11 commission, which the maybe the governor next. sees it differently. Uh, yeah. you know, th- this is an incident that implicates one political party in a very big way. Um, that, that 9-11 was an attack from from the outside. And here, Republicans think they have a lot to lose and Democrats have a lot to gain by continuing to look into it.
1: Nick Fandos is congressional reporter for The New York Times, and Tom Cain is the chair of the 9-11 Commission and a former New Jersey Republican governor. Thanks for joining me for this conversation, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you. That's a wrap, folks. It's been a pleasure being with you here all week, and I'll be back in the chair on Monday. Before we go, I'd like to give a big shout-out to the best production team in radio who puts this show together every day. Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer and board op. Jake Cowitt is our director and editor. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. And Jackie Martin is our line producer. Amber Hall is our senior producer, and her producer crew is Ethan Oberman, Jose Alivarez, Meg Dalton, Patricia Jacob, Lydia McMullen-Laird, David Gable is our executive assistant, and Lee Hill is our EP. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Matt Katz, in for Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway.